Welcome to this fifth edition of the Art Audio Book Club. Today we're examining I Love Dick by Chris Krauss, originally published by Simeo Text in 1997, but reprinted in 2015 by Tosca Rock Press in Great Britain. This new edition of the book looks like a toxic spill with its acid green cover and pink letters. It looks like a light read you might enjoy while lying by the pool in Tenerife, but for reals, it's not a light read. It's an explosion and arguably the best book I'll have read in 2016. So before we get started, a quick thanks to Telke Pilova from the shop who introduced us all to it. We could easily have done three more podcasts in this book as there's so much to say, but no, we're not going to do that. And the people you'll hear in this episode are... Nathan Holt. Hi. Min Ava Pietela. Hi. And guest star Emma Holton. Hello. And I'm Giovanna Alessandro. So I'm going to ease in with a question that might serve as a jump board of how would you characterize this novel, Macon? That's a really misleading question for an ease in because it's a, <laughs> it's a massive combination of different things. It's it's meditations on theory and it's essentially an epistolary novel about uh, Chris Krauss as a as a constru- as a construct of writing, being infatuated with Dick Hebdige, the art uh, writer. But it's also a piece of autofiction and. It goes into these theoretical meditations and essays on art and life and world experience and the nature of infatuation and like what do you, what do you want me to say, Gio? <laughs> <laughs> then I'm gonna ask about the lonely girl phenomenology that she calls the genre because this book is very aware of itself and she writes about writing it and it has its own self consciousness in a sense. And how did that work out? How was it reading a book that is so aware of itself and at the same time claims to be fiction? Well, I guess that's one of those things that... um, Was it 97 that it originally came out? Yes. So I'm assuming at the time unheard of. But uh, this... Yeah, the fact that she calls it Lonely Girl Phenomenology, I think (laughs) is funny because I immediately thought of uh, Lonely Girl 15. Oh, I remember her. Yeah. So she was this. Um, it turned out to be fictional. Yeah. I think, but this. I was in. I was obsessed with it. It was like in the beginning of YouTube, um, where there was this, and people started vlogging, um, and you know, talking into their cameras, and there was this girl who kind of came up and started doing these pretty regular vlogging videos, like talking about her boyfriend and talking about her family, and she was kind of sick of them or whatever, and and then suddenly things took like a pretty radical turn because she got not necessarily abducted or kidnapped, but she was kind of taken away from her home and we were following this on the vlog. She was thinking con- that it was Thinking that it was real. real. Um, for a pretty long while, they managed to keep it under wraps that it was f- actually fake. And this was in the very beginning where you believed stuff on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and like, like the value amazing. of... Yeah, and I guess the value of Lonely Girl 15 was that it was... You know, it was the first introduction to yeah vlogs and and video diaries. So you know the the what Chris Krauss does in I Love Dick with this Lonely Girl phenomenology, Lonely Girl Fifteen started to do with the internet. I feel so too. I feel that there is definitely this kind of interpolating effect all the time, where the book is speaking about itself, but it's also speaking about the fact that it's a book. And it's a person, but it's also not a book. And it's it's all very confusing. I think, as a, or at least I felt as a reader, 
that I was kind of really along for the ride, not really knowing what the hell was going on, and exactly. what, was, what was real and what was fake. And, and then there's this, I think, what's so interesting to me is that I feel that as a reader, you have this kind of incessant need to want to make sense of things and want to understand what's going on. Mm. And then at some point reading I Love Dick, you just kind of suspend that need and you're like, okay, whatever. I'm just going to go along with this yeah, because and see it is, where it takes me. Because it is self-reflexive all the way through, like it comments upon itself and considers and contemplates itself as, it, as the book develops, um, which is also what, you know, you know, I feel like going straight to the... What was it called? The, the the male, the I, the the male, the great story of the self. Oh, the great heterosexual male <laughs> novel. Um, was that? Yeah, it, is that what I'm thinking about? I guess. I think there's been a few different terms in the book, or maybe the conversation that I've read around it. Just getting into the thought process and the developments of this story, which unravel as as the book itself, like as you flick through the pages which is also comparable to what exists much more nowadays, which is the, yeah, for instance, like YouTube um, phenomenons on which like the narrative just continues and continues and continues. Mm. And it's this like ongoing contemplation and conversation about itself. Whereas before, and I, I guess during the time uh, when this book also came out, you know, we were expecting stories to be more complete and mm finished before they would be allowed to be let into the world. Yeah, I think also that really feeds in like really well to the whole subject matter of the book as well. Like it's talking about the incompleteness and the inability to like to like reduce experience to like a finite set of like um, of testable hypotheses or uh, actionable statements. And so yeah, there's this formal quality is illustrating I think lots of the points that it's bringing out and I think that was and I guess also what we, I guess is now, as you were saying, a, a, more, um, a more prevalent point of our everyday lives is this obvious incompleteness and this obvious fractured and fragmented um, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, f- I feel that too. And now that you've invited me as a guest star, of course I'm going to talk about feminism um, and, and how I, I see this as, 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 as actually a really feminist point because I feel that also a very big part of this book is kind of identity building. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the limitations that that uh, inhabiting a female body sets for your identity building, and how it projects onto other people. Because when I read this book, I feel that um, Chris or the writer, the speaker who is Chris, is an extremely well-thinking intellectual person who uh, easily rivals mm. Dick in reflection, in matters of reflection, in matters of inte- intellectual and cognitive ability, in her analysis, in her work. And what's so powerful about this is that she juxtaposes it with this infatuation that is almost, you know, teen teenage-like. Yeah. And I thought that was really powerful because we have this idea of female infatuation as being uh, unrelated to intellect. You know, serious women don't fall in love. Mm-hmm. And they especially don't fall in love in this teeny way. And I felt that that was a really strong statement on the limitations that we set out for, for female identity building. And she also, I think, considers it at some points in different ways herself is that I'm a serious person. Mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to be like this. Mm-hmm. But she kind of breaks down both mm-hmm. barriers and allows herself to be both people, which I find to be 
you know, hugely interesting. And as always with, with norms and feminism and stuff, you don't realize that you've been missing something until you see it happen. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how I felt about this book. Mm -hmm. Smart yeah. people becoming stupid by falling in love <laughs> yeah. and being women. And yeah. she talks about it, I think, in the beginning where she says, I think I am better at analyzing art than you are or something like that. Uh, when she talks about him showing her video that was aired on BBC of him in a Johnny Cash costume. And she says something like, I think I understand art better than you do, or, and also your kind of art is sort of naive, mm -hmm. which I usually don't like. But then she's ready to make a compromise. Of, yeah. But that can also be beautiful in its own way or something mm -hmm. like that. She's mm -hmm. really ready to compromise her own intellectual ideals yeah. for him. Yeah. And another thing in the book is that she ascribes her book to him, The Aliens and Anarchia, that she wrote. She makes it his book yeah. and his genius quotes uh, <laughs> on anorexia becomes his. Yeah, I didn't really understand that choice. What's also, what's also interesting is like the re kind of recurring motif, which I guess fades out through the book, where she will repeatedly insist that Chris Krauss, in the narrator's voice, Chris Krauss is not an intellectual. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, in the, it's in the opening paragraph like where like Sylvain and Dick are talking and there's also Chris Krauss was not an intellectual mm. clearly and you're already like that's not true and, um, they, and they do it again with with the female communist activist who's mm. also at the dinner they say, Wolf, yeah. yeah she's not she's not an intellectual and i think this figure of the of the intellectual as being you know inherently male is such it's it's, it's a trope that's been mm. gone through again and again but i think this is by far the most interesting way i've seen it handled Because it, it says that, you know, you can wear the role of the intellectual as a costume if when you're mm. a woman, but the compromises that you will have to go through with your female sexuality, mm -hmm. with your embodiment, with your thinking are, you know, tremendous sacrifices. Yeah. So you, you can be it, but it, it, it comes at a price, you know? Yeah, and in her case, I guess the price is pretty, like, clearly stated. Okay, I definitely don't have the quote, but there's one part in which I thought it was kind of heartbreaking where she describes herself as a, a negotiated herself into being, I think it was the intelligent and the useful girl instead of like being pretty and attractive and good. Mm. Because that was also like when she describes getting dumped mm. by guy after guy after guy and they always find these new women and describe them as... Actually, genuinely such, good people. Yeah. <laughs> I've met someone and she's such a good girl. She's, she's not yeah. like you, she's a good girl. Like, what the hell is that? But she keeps on talking about herself in relation to the men as that she models herself out of what she thinks they need. Yeah. Like she says she fell in love with Silver because she thought she could build him up and she, yeah. now she wants Dick to tear her apart. Hmm. But also like the, the weird strength in their actual, in their relationship is actually, it comes kind of like, Like, so she was infatuated with him because she thought she could build him up, but also he found ways to make her not die. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and, mm. and then he found that a fascinating, rewarding thing as well, and it was... And I liked that uh, in the first part of the book called Scenes from a Marriage, how in the beginning I really liked Sylvain. I yeah, thought it sounded too. fantastic. They might not have had sex for 10 years, but it sounded nice. <laughs> they, the, but really, shit works. They <laughs> had a nice thing going. It sounded like a partnership mm. uh, where they were equals. Yeah. And then towards the end of that essay, or what you would call it, mm. when you hear how shitty it's actually also been, and she, that's just been sort of glossed over in the beginning, mm. I thought that was so. How part. how is it again that it's been shitty? So there's been the abortions and the 
like and disbalancing money and status and success the money i think she kind of made even that she invested his money and made them grow mm. uh but yes success she has worked a lot for him done his things uh got no reward out of that mm. and always been discarded by the bataille boys who were yes. following the <laughs> around which is a wonderful name for a group and, yeah, and you just know who they it's, are it's you know the bataille, the bataille bros <laughs> but and i think it's this this thing and i think that's probably maybe the reason that it also only surfaces in the last part of the book is that she's all in with in every relationship both with dick and with silver and this is just a really classical feminist point but she always exists in negation to them so every time they do something new or get some new interest or start getting into bataille or whatever she kind of just follows along and takes up the role that she's supposed to have in negation to that person and i feel that what this book really does follow is her attempt to kind of break out of that and say, you know, who am I if I am not something compared to or in relation to a man? If I'm standing... And it, and it's, it becomes so um, self-erasing because she just finds out I'm nothing mm. if there's not this man that I can... I've, for so many years, I've defined myself and defined what I desire from men and then suddenly... If there's no man, there's nothing. And I feel that like the infatuation with Dick is also, you know, an obsession with having something to play off of. Because mm. it's terrifying to not have anything. Mm. And also for, you know, having had all of these soul-crushing and negatively reaffirming experiences from men, then, uh, then you know, of course she would fall for a character like Dick. <laughs> who barely exists. Yeah. Then, <laughs> she invents him. And I she mean, yeah. erases him as well along the novel. She turns him into Dear Diary. Yeah. She doesn't really need him. But, well, eventually, but that's a progress, it's a process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah. very, very simply, like, I think Chris gets fascinated by Dick. Dick does not get fascinated by Chris. Ergo, Chris <laughs> loves Dick. Yeah. yeah, and the less that Dick exists, the more like, the more there is to love. <laughs> and also because in the uh, yeah, I was really interested in the relationship between Chris and Silver, because I like I I don't really blame Silver that much for it. <laughs> he means well. I feel that too. I think yeah. so, and I think just there's the realization that Chris has where she states that she now realizes that Silva was never in love with her. And then, I mean, then she does conclude later that obviously he does love her when she comes across the journal entries mm -hmm. and so on. But but of course she would feel like he doesn't mm. because like having this little sense of self and this poor self-esteem and especially in the relationships, then, you know, of course she would choose a mate that she would then end up feeling rejected by. <sighs> And even even though their union is is great and beautiful, it's it is sexless. Mm. Um, so even when it's good, it's it's not it's not that good. It's like it confused the function of of their relationship. Then like like that, that's what they both ended up confusing. Was like this is functioning within us, but in the, within this business arrangement, this this Marxist redistribution project <laughs> that they're engaging in. Mm. But I'm, but I'm kind of interested in the sexlessness, actually. I don't think I see it as that much of a failure, necessarily. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as a problem. Either. No, I don't see it as a problem. Oh. I, I'm, I'm actually pretty interested in like exploring different types of organizing mm -hmm. your, ourselves. And, and it feels like it's not the sex that's the problem. It's the fact that 
she doesn't understand whether it's a problem for her yeah. or not. Like, yeah, the, the, there's yeah. lack of coming to terms with the situation where she is. And I think that that's also, to me, a really big theme in the book is kind of negotiating other people's expectations and your own wishes. Mm-hmm. It's kind mm-hmm. of the, like, the thread that goes through everything. And it seems like she's not even able to relate to this issue of the sexless marriage because she's so clouded by the fact that she knows that other people expect her to have sex in that relation. So she's really conflicted that she's like, I'm actually pretty happy in how these things work, Mm. but I I shouldn't be because we're not having sex and we're not all of these Mm. things. So there was also like a lack of identity there. There's no firm holding point where she's like, she actually just says, this is my opinion. And that's what I think is so interesting with the last uh, art essay is that she actually only exists as a person when she's analyzing art. That's where Mm. she has opinions. That's where she does observations. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. when she consolidates as, as a speaking figure I feel and also in the letter she writes to Dick because she does write these are the realest things I've ever done yeah uh, it's there she becomes herself by I guess talking about herself well like yeah in, I guess you're saying in the act of like erasing Dick you find that she, she's actually seeing like what she was she sit, grows and like, he diminishes she, well, she, like, was make, she was making him and then there's <clears> kind of like almost reflection back mm, against, but it seems there's like nothing, she realized what she actually was but it seems like a parallel to that uh, relationship she's describing between David Retra and his wife of how along the years he became larger and his wife just became smaller and smaller and smaller until she wasn't really there mm-hmm. but here Dick becomes smaller and she kind of yeah. grows she just inhabits more and more space until, you know, she doesn't even have to say his name. Which I, I feel is, is some sort of victory for her. There is there is a, a, a huge... And I think that's what is, what's interesting in terms of what it shares with, you know, this epistolary tradition of, of letter writing mm. um, and constituting yourself with another person. Because, yeah. you know, the original uh, letter writing stories, you know, like Pamela, Richardson, all of these mm. things. I find it really interesting that back then actually through letters written to other people was the way you constituted your identity whereas Mm. we have a view of identity now which is you know i am an affixed rounded off person just Mm -hmm. standing on my own Mm. and i'm kind of interested in criticizing that as well because of course we only have an identity in relation with other people. We don't need an identity if there's no other people. Exactly. And I think that that's what's interesting about this book is that of course we all bounce off of other people Mm. all the time. Yeah. That, that, you know, this idea that we're all, you know, intellectuals <laughs> st- standing on our own and yeah. being a fixed identity. Yeah. Maybe it's our identity view that's fucked up and Richardson was right all along. It's in the epistolary how mm. we talk to other people that our identity comes through. Well, it's also like, it just as they're saying in the beginning, like, you know, it, how fiercely anti-psychiatric um, <laughs> these two are. is because they are like, of that, they're of that like particular theory tradition, um, the, like Silver and Chris of like this the losing guitar notion that it's just a swirling mess of things it's not there's not a core there's not a thing which you are and then the whole world and your body and this interaction and so yeah the, the, what i think is really it's very difficult to make that articulate or clear <laughs> and this book comes quite close to that i think and and that's why I, I really took a lot from that i thought wow i understand like really really hard french books much better now because because <laughs> like someone put it in very imminent like real terms and it was just yeah. But so if our identity is constructed only by the way that we, like, as in the experience that other people get from us, then what is then what is being done to Dick, actually? 
And that's uh, another thing, because what she's doing to him is, in a sense, horrible. <laughs> in, in a lot of senses. It's very violent, yes. I feel. And I would, because Dick is a real person. Mm. Um, and so is she, everyone in that book, are real people. Um, I, was, and I was just reading the, um, the, the, like, apparently the critical response to this when it came out was that it was just salacious gossip. And it yeah. was very, 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 yeah. very mean. I felt, when I realized, along uh, reading the book, The dick does exist, uh, is a real person. I felt complicit in that act of violence against him by keeping on reading. Yeah. I didn't actually know if I should stop because I felt like I was violating his privacy. Yeah, there's definitely some consent issues going on here. <laughs> um, I, I would... I, I, And there was, I don't think there was a lawsuit, but there was at least, you know... Lawyers. Lawyers, yeah. Well, there was a conspicuous straight line where his second name is, like, like Dick. Raffner. <laughs> Ra oh, yeah, no, Derek Raffner was, the, was yes. the, uh, the, the pseudonym he could have been, yeah. But there's also, I think, and, and that's, I, I think it's almost like Bonnie and Clyde-ish, is that there's some sense of revenge in it like a revenge on these intellectual yeah. men who just kind of dominate these women mm. and who for so long have stolen these women's thoughts mm. and their stories and their analysis and everything and used it for their you know praxis and then yeah. there's like you know what i'm gonna turn this upside down i'm gonna take everything from you guys and i'm gonna use it to promote myself look mm. how that feels mm. you know because also like you know in the past women You know, real women have been um, portrayed in a similar way as just, you know, let's say the muse. <laughs> And here it's Dick is almost like an anti-muse, like yeah, just getting yeah. douchier by the page mm. and also getting less and less all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I really I think the muse point is really interesting because I think always women have been told that there's something honorable and beautiful about being amused, and I've always seen it as really derogatory and messed up. It's like, you're using me for thoughts. I'm a person. <laughs> and it just feels like as soon as you see it being done to this intellectual man, you see it as something that is a violent act. Exactly. Which is, Which so is something we don't grant all the faceless women no, exactly. throughout the times. It's like all these, you know, like... F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife was a beautiful writer herself. All the women in, you know, the beat movement who were never yeah. mentioned, but just kind of like used and thrown out. Like, she's just, I feel she's essentially doing to Dick Hebdige what has been done to women since, you know, like the first cave painting of a naked woman. Mm. <laughs> it just it just really sucks to be Dick. He's like, ah, yeah. oh, shit, I'm the Dick, first you're one. you're getting all the shit from all the men. <laughs> but then also as a, as a result somehow like with with the roles in this order then somehow chris the character or whatever kind of ends up becoming this like it, the, the, we end up looking at it as if it's something uh, a little bit gross mm -hmm. and a bit pathetic mm -hmm. this type of infatuation and yeah. this putting man on a pedestal yeah yeah that and that's so the the infatuation thing i think is a really interesting thing about the like what is the infatuation That I think you could say that the infatuation, I think this is an extreme degree, but infatuation is always you constructing a person and putting them oh, on yeah. a pedestal. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and I feel like it's also very much exploring the concept of infatuation, which is mm. this like hormonal spasm mm. in your brain. Everything goes crazy. <laughs> I think we've all ex experienced it. It's just that we have denigrated it to some sort of thing that, you know, doesn't really need analysis, but should be unexplained. Yeah. And, 
And coming close to infatuation is so pathetic. <laughs> yes, it's essentially a mirror what that you hold. What are you doing? Get yourself together. What's really funny about this particular form of infatuation, though, is like in this kind of mirroring the, the kind of male muse treatment that, we, that was going on, like within like male sexual dynamics, it seems to be this thing of when you're in fashion, what, what you want to do is you want to possess the woman. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like, she kind of wants to be possessed by dick. Yeah. And that's, this makes the whole thing, that's what makes it seem more gross perhaps. Yeah, yeah maybe that's it. Because yeah, like, she doesn't want to possess dick. No. She wants to help Dick realize himself in this whole... Like, yeah, she, she really wants to be, like, objectified and yeah. possessed and treated, you know, b- somehow badly. She just doesn't, She just wants him to have a relationship with her, yeah. even if it's, like, really fraught and, like, and violent. And, and their first oppressive. sexual uh, meeting, she wants to be his lapdog. Yeah. Uh, That's, the, uh, That's the phrase, yes. Yeah. <laughs> she wants him to treat her as his lapdog. Literally. And so oh, he does. Yeah. <laughs> Gladly. <laughs> yeah, so there definitely is this kind of inversion of power that that goes on where she actually made... And, and I think a subject that I want to ask you about is, you know, how does Dick see Chris? Like, does he even care? Like, what do you think? He does now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like awkward receptions in, like, L.A. I don't know. I don't know if I would like her because she is just using him. So I think he, at one, at places he's really mean and he shouldn't have been, but I can understand him because I'm, he is, like, pushed into a corner. Yeah. It's, it's he's true. He's away from me. Yeah, and that's how he reacts. However, I do think that if he was, like, even remotely potentially attracted to Chris, then he would be reacting in a totally different way. Mm. But then, so we don't think he's attracted to her. No, not, no. Does he force him to have sex with her? Like, is he, does Chris rape Dick? No. Mm. No, no. That's not what I mean. But just like he thinks she's attractive, but he doesn't care. He's not that interested. No, he he's more interested in her husband. Yeah. Yeah. He's way more interested. As I mean, their letter correspondence in the beginning is almost homoerotic. Yeah. But okay, I'm. Uh, back to how the novel is constructed because I could make an entire episode just on that because I think it's so wonderful because it comes off confessional these seems like confessions yeah Um, but that I think raises a question that she talks about in one of the essays of how women are denied access to the apersonal and if we call this autobiographical or a memoir or confessions do we fall into the trap of seeing this as something personal. Can we make that distinction of she is telling something from her own life, but it's not personal? I mean, in terms of like, if you want to be in terms of classification, I'm going to say that this is a novel. Mm-hmm. Like in the same way that something like Dave Eggers' Heartbreaking Book of Second Genius is a novel, even though people think it's a memoir, it's just not. It's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's an exercise in invention and discussion. It's not... I'm not. I and, and you're right. So she does point out this problem of like women getting reduced to like saying, "Oh, this was just how it was for me," and like and but no, she is. There's a definite outward motion. So she is. I think like whatever we say the prose novel is, that is this. Okay. I so think. you describe it as a novel. Yeah. All right. Is it cheating calling it autobiographical fiction? <laughs> <laughs> but isn't all fiction essentially in a sense always autobiographical yeah, that's, that's what i would yeah i don't know i just i just in a way want to call it autobiographical because 
it gets such an extra layer by the fact that you know that it's that these people are real. <laughs> and they have been married. And they've been and married and, and Dick exist. is real and the lawyers and yeah. everything. And and it's just it just feel like to me that does not take away from the book. Rather yeah. it adds a completely extra layer of readings. Um, the fact that there is this, you know, inversion, like, like we just talked about before, yeah. you know, that this actually writes into structures of power in the cultural world that, that are very real with real people. And the status mm. that Dick Hebditch mm. has in real life is something that I definitely take with me into this book. I mean, on, so, on, yeah. on, the, on the back cover, it says fiction. <laughs> We're gonna believe that. But, okay, but, but, but I think, I think, point being, if it was, if it's a nonfiction here, then it could only be treated as an expose. Like then it would be, um, yeah. Like then, then I would, I would also need to talk to a lawyer. I think. <laughs> but uh, about, about but, your, but, about your but the thing about if every piece of literature or if every novel always ends up being in some way autobiographical, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think I want to agree with it but i understand the point and in that way maybe this book is just doing it more in an in a more explicit way mm. whereas in all the other literature that we have recently read it's just it's it's more implied yeah it's very yeah everything is very thinly veiled in that it's only veiled under the label a novel or fiction but at the same time <laughs> of course like there's nothing um stopping chris kraus from just simply crafting a story like this, like just making it up and just calling her characters Chris Krause and Silver Lothrigeon. But following the argument of the book, we could call it a performative philosophy. I like to think of it as performative philosophy. She says, I think of our story as performative philosophy. Yeah. And I like that because, yeah, it, it's a story, but it, I think... To me, the story is only there to illustrate a point. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know if I would call this a feminist novel. Maybe I would. I think... I like the thing performative, because I, I feel that it's a book that does something in the real world. And I think that's also why I would call it feminist, because I feel that one of the big points is the fact that it really explores the fact that, you know... If we accept the premise that we live in a world that is still structured heavily towards um, men dominating women, especially maybe in the cultural sphere, it explores how that plays out in the micro relations, you know, because we also always talk mm. about structural power. But this kind of really heavily engages with, but you know, that subjugation is something I carry with me even in my closest relations with men. It's actually impossible for me to not be, you know, almost what do you say, uh, complicit or, or, or guilty of yeah. participating. But I think yeah. that's the feminist thing of yeah. it. that Because it explores power relations, yeah. Yeah. which to me is like the basis of feminist yeah. praxis. And I that, and that's the thing with the performative, because what it does is that it, it, it actually makes very concrete comments on the current status of women, I feel. Yeah. Good, or, good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know why it is written in the first place. I mean, maybe it is just her you know, sort of masturbating on her emotions and and uh, without any further agenda. And then through like a coincidence, it's just ended up being quite valuable, actually. Like, we don't mm, know. I don't think you can write this book by accident. You you have to ha want, have something you want to say by writing this point because it's so full of illustrations of the structure and the relationship and her thoughts. I don't think that... 
becomes accidental. I think I agree with that. I feel that the experiences might be a hopscotch, whatever things that have just happened, but you know, the heavy use of philosophers and the heavy use of a very specific, you know, the epistolary mm. form yeah. is definitely a choice. You know, it's a structural choice that does something on its own and refer- references back to different ways of looking at mm. identity. And I think that if I do have to do have some criticism of this book, but I also feel it's not a criticism because it's part of it that she's really annoying. But, <laughs> but it's it's so overthought. Yeah. Like there's so much there's so much thinking going on that there's hardly any doing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And like it's 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 it thinks about itself so much that you're like, you want to tell it to relax. <laughs> go, go, go have a beer, Sit you know. Do down. something nice for yourself. God. Yeah. Well, I think it's just this amazing contribution that it does. Aside from the, but it, I know it seems like a wonderful like apology for like overthinking, <laughs> like the productive power of like because the accusation that some people get when they are in sort of cultural theoretical ways of doing stuff or engaging with the world is that they are overthinking stuff. And what yeah. she's actually doing is showing how much work it is to tell a different story about the world. Yeah, mm. I think that's true. And that's what this kind of relationship that I, I'm really interested in exploring is this relationship between fiction and theory. And that theory to me is always just expressions of ideas into a narrative. Mm-hmm. And, and this is just going the opposite direction. It's taking narrative into ideas. And it's, yeah, I just think that's a fantastic thing to do. And if it's <laughs> with a kind of annoyingness, that's nice as well, because mm. I don't know. It, but it's a brilliant book and I loved how it keeps on commenting on itself. It yeah. apologizes for itself and yeah. it anticipates itself. Mm. And I like because at one point she writes, because most, quotation mark, serious fiction still <laughs> involves the fullest pos- possible expression of a single person's subjectivity. It's considered crass and amateurish not to, quotation marks, fictionalize the supporting <laughs> cast of characters, changing names and is insignificant features of their identities. The, quotation marks, serious contemporary hetero male <laughs> novel is a thinly veiled story of me as voraciously consumptive as all of patriarchy. While the hero anti-hero explicitly is the author, everybody else is reduced to characters. Yeah. That's when she talks about um, Paul Oster <laughs> basically demolishing the personality of his then-girlfriend, um, who was a real person mm-hmm. whose name I forgot. So, so in a way, I see this as an apology for not fictionalizing Dick mm. of making him a real person. I think Which she mm-hmm. talks to him about later in the book. Like, mm-hmm. I could call you Derek... Raffner. Yeah. Mm. It could be an apology or, is it, or it could also be the opposite, like a very proud justification. Yeah, an explanation, but yeah. still in an explanation there is, in this explanation there is the shadow, the hint of an apology because she keeps on wanting to explain herself and justify herself all through the book. I think that I really like the comment on, on like the thinking subject and everyone else becoming characters and it feels like the, the, the thing that she's apologizing for is, you know, this very acute knowledge that, you know, I am not what you would see as the universal human, but mm. maybe the universal human doesn't exist. <laughs> maybe you've just been told that people who are just being themselves actually have, have been mm. very specific types of people and not just human, that this is also a humanity. But her, how the book works, she's constantly, you know, assessing... I know what you're thinking right now, 
and I've already thought it a million times. You can't tell yeah. me anything I haven't thought about a million times, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm, you know, 10 thoughts ahead of you. And I think that's what I feel that even though she annoys me, I'm very, I admire this, the Chris's intellect, like hugely, because she seems so heavily reflective of her own position and so competent in yeah. anal analyzing her own position. It's incredibly impressive, but it also sounds exhausting. <laughs> and, and this is also a thing which comes out through the rest of the... To talk about stuff which which doesn't come easily as words. A, a refrain she uses, and I can't remember who she's quoting, but because when they rejected a specific set of language and theoretical tools, people thought they were dumb. And when the ways that you talk about sort of any sort of oppression or the way that you're um, meant to deal with overcoming that is so limited, so um, stuck within a particular form that actually is itself oppressive. And then you reject, reject that. And then you realize that the fact that anti-oppression itself becomes this whole power structure thing. And, and they have an identifiable label of being, okay, these are the feminist artists just doing the thing. It just don't need to... Yeah, yeah, how women in a collective, or women mm. doing art together are always a collective. Yeah. But men who are doing, like the Dadaists, mm. uh, in a collective are geniuses. Yeah. yeah individual geniuses. They were mm, all yeah. individual yeah. geniuses. and then. But the women are a collective of women. Who are doing things about femi feminists mm -hmm. and fe femaleness, and it was, it was all about collectivity, yeah. I really like this... And this is, I think, this is an amazing quote that I've really thought about after reading this book. Is that she says it's it's a Gilles Deleuze quote from from Chaosophy, which is Guattari's book, and it is lived experience does not mean sensible qualities; it means intensification. And I've been thinking about it a lot because lived experience obviously is um, a huge, huge important thing mm. in identity politics. It's you know, and I feel that lived experience is also you know a huge um, issue in this book, you know, how do we use our lived experience to say something about politics? How do we use it to say something about power? And then it says, does not mean sensible qualities. And I think that that's so interesting because it says, you know, the fact that you have experienced mm. something does not make it relevant or interesting or valid in any mm. sort of um, context at all. However, what it does is it has a huge effect on things that you experience afterwards. And I think maybe that's also one of the bigger feminist points here is that she is not a person experiencing this. Mm. She is very explicitly a person, a woman experiencing this, mm. which does not make it true or real or interesting. It's just a fact of it. Yeah. I think it's also interesting. Yeah. It's, and it's like that moment of like, Sensible qualities, then you could just section it off and then find the prepositions <laughs> from what had happened to you. And then we could discuss, discuss whether or not your reaction to that was valid. Exactly. But the thing is, intensification is this process of, of enriching and going into and, and exploring a space which is... It's, like there's so much, it's much more than the sum of its parts. And that's so hard to articulate in, in, uh, in a series of statements. Especially mm -hmm. when you try and rearticulate someone else's series of statements, which is book length, <laughs> to try and get like that. That's the feeling that I got reading this book was I was really aware of an intensification. Yeah, mm. I was really aware of something which I'm like, feeling parallels in my own life of that moment of going so far into an experience that I can't explain it to anyone. And if I try and put it as propositions, people go, ah, "That's ridiculous. Why that? Why would you 
be concerned with this. And that's why I think this thing is quite an exciting thing to read, is because it makes you, it, it puts you there. Yeah, it, it does, like, it does not, can, like, the, the way she behaves has no internal structure of logic. It is so hev- heav- heavily influenced by her as a person. It is such radically a subjective experience that none of us would say I would do exactly the same. There is mm-hmm. a resistance mm-hmm. to identification all the time. It's like, you're not me. Mm-hmm. I'm not you. I'm not a, a person. I am not a woman. I am Chris Krause doing weird shit because these things have happened to me. And my lived experience makes this so intense to me. Mm-hmm. But it's not sensible. Mm. It, it doesn't make any sense. Mm. And I think that that's the resistance to... And I think that's what also started to, when I saw, talked in the beginning, that this resistance to making any sense is what makes the book so interesting because you feel like you're getting to know a person. Like, for real, getting to mm. know a person. Because there is no need to explain it uh, referring to some bigger logic of human behavior or some bigger logic to doxa or whatever. It's just... I did this because I felt like waiting by the phone for five hours. And so maybe the reason that I, <clears throat> as I was reading it, yeah, kind of emotionally rejected her sometimes, you know, it was because it, perhaps I felt like it was relatable, but not fully. So it was, you know, a bit uncomfortable, as in I recognized some things in myself. Or the potentiality aspects. of, or how it has been like. Right, yeah. yeah. Aspects of, of those in it. But at the same time, I needed empathy to really relate and to accept the character. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, Gio, about the quote that you brought out, is that this idea of everyone else, be, one being a subject and everyone else being a character, what she's saying is, you know, I'm a character. We're mm-hmm. all characters mm-hmm. who act irrationally and who... And I think that's that's what's so interesting about, you know, the using this as an ep- epistolary thing is that she's very much resisting this idea that we should feel, yeah, like, we're her, or that it should make any sense, or it, because, ca- like, subjects in books, these male heterosexual people, always kind of ascribe some sort of logic of humanness and have this, you know, then I did this and then I did that because that that's what humans do, because mm. we're human, it's human nature. Mm. And so it's also, you know, very you know, basically Foucauldian, you know, there is no human nature, there's just me suspended in this nuttiness. Mm. But that's also what I think she's trying to break down with the whole last essay of added up about schizophrenia, yeah. of how making sense out of coincidences all the time, because everything mm. is a coincidence and you're bombarded with these impressions yeah. and your brain needs to make sense of it, otherwise yeah. you can't exist, so it's a total overload. Yeah, and this is this is the moment where it's like, she's getting really into like the losing Guitari stuff and it's like the and, 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 and stuff that she talks about, <laughs> where she's rejecting the either or, like what their whole stuff is about, it's like, no, it's both. It, the world can be both at once and they can contradict each other, but that contradiction is irrelevant. You know, contradiction does yeah. not... Yeah, and contra- that's... It is how yeah. it is to be schizophrenic. It's how it is... Yeah, it's also how it is to be... Um, like, I can't remember the name of the book. There's a book about... Um, written by uh, an autistic woman about psychoanalysis and how a- autistic people experience the world more as as matter, as things are. Mm. As, like, how table becomes book, becomes computer, how there's no... Like, whereas I'm going, the book is on the table. It is next to the computer. These are separate, distinct things. I'm safe. I understand everything. Whereas, like, no, like, where, where are you going to say these two things end and begin if I don't decide to separate them? Where do I... And, and that's 
what's really fascinating about that section and also what it, the, the, the parallels that draws to what she is saying is, is feminine subjectivity, the feminine subjective I is is a rejection of this male notion of I am an individual and I am distinct in the world and nothing else and I will affect things and yeah. they will not affect me because yeah. I am already me. I do on two. I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like mostly she's saying like, it's already both. It's like, I'm that, but I'm, all, like, I'm also a distinct thing and I'm also that, but I'm also not. I'm also affected. I'm also influenced. I'm also interacting and, and you know, part of, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing we discussed. I feel like that kind of relates to what we talked about before with the identity building is that there is both this incessant need to say, you know, it's all fucking structure. I have no idea what it means to be a woman. I have no idea what it means to be mm. me. I have no idea where, where you know, patriarchy begins and I start as an individual and and that's fine and that's theory and that's how we all know it works and that's how Silver says it works and then there's also you know this incredible need to be this entity that exists in the world and be a radical subject that writes and feels and does onto others and I think that that's the thing with with Dick getting smaller and smaller is also you know maybe her also you know first using Dick as defining herself but then also kind of letting it go and starting to connect to different to other nodal points instead and be mm. defined by other nodal points. So she ends in this either or position is that, you know, I'm a, I'm a victim to structure and, to in, and, I'm, and I'm constantly interpolated, but I insist on being a subject as well all the time. And those two things are completely contradictory, mm. both in theory and in literature. But it kind of just works out here. She kind of yeah. manages to inhabit those two spaces. Just to rejects me. the contradiction. Yeah, she's yeah. like, I, I, she's like, I refuse to to buy one of those. Yeah. <laughs> but God, it takes so much work, though. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, she does. I'm actually surprised how little it takes. <laughs> Two hundred and forty-five pages. <laughs> but she does it successfully. But that's why that's why nothing happens. That's why it's so much of the mind and so much the thinking and and you know this, you know, m- making sure that the reader is aware that she is six steps ahead and. Yeah, like I think, yeah, that's what we require. Mm-hmm. And I think that the thing with being six steps ahead is like, that's maybe how she manages it. Is that for everything that that happens, there's always you know the thought that it was gonna happen, and then relating back to it. There's, there's yeah. always this, you know, I'm in the thought, but I'm also in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm in the thought, and I'm also in the world. Yeah. Um, which is also, you know, in the the meta discussion of being mm. a book and being a person, like the on the go analysis. Yeah, it's like we we we. It's laissez faire theory, you know. And it's, and, it's so, and, it's, and it's so beautifully done in that in that added up chapter towards the end of that chapter where this interweaving of like her experience with Dick at this the, her final interactions with him and but interweaving this story of her growing up in New Zealand but in a third person remove. Yeah. Oh God, I've forgotten about that. And that is the, the New Zealand thing. <laughs> that's, and, that, and that's so remarkable because she's like talking about how, how like how how this book is her taking control of the first person, and being allowed. Yeah, I. What a great book. I love <laughs> it. You could really talk about it for ages, and I think that that's maybe one of the big successes of it is that. I defy anyone to to make a you know master reading of this book. Mm. That would be impossible. Um, mm. And that's the great beauty also, of it. Not desirable. Yeah, it would be boring. You don't want like that'd be terrible. You, you want <laughs> to let it vibrate, and yeah. I w- I'm sure if I read it again, I would I would probably be like, no, this is completely about being a subject, and no, then I would read it again and it's like, no, this is about <laughs> being, you know, a victim to social structures. 
Yeah, I, uh, terrific. I highly recommend it to everyone. So do I. Yeah. I, I, I do as well. No reservations. Please read it and be angry and... Oh, and also yes exactly because I would also recommend it but I don't think I liked it so much yeah and I think that's like there was I don't totally know why but maybe there's like yeah there's so much so much thinking in it and so much thinking that I had to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's exhausting to read her yeah. but like I, I'm, I'm I've been very interested all throughout the reading experience but I'm left with very little emotion yeah so I don't I would, get that part. Can I end with a quote from the book? You, you, you can. I have to say one thing. I, I would like yeah. to also say one thing about how I felt an emotion, but you can start with it. Can you, do you want to end with the quote at the end? No, no, no. I just want to read this quote okay. because she lends her words to us, and I think it's so powerful. Shame is what you feel after being fucked on quaaludes by some art world cohort who pretend it never happened. Shame is what you feel after giving blowjobs in the bathroom at Max Kansas City because Lisa Martin wants free coke. Shame is what you feel after letting someone take you someplace past control, then feeling torn up three days later between desire, paranoia, etiquette, wondering if they'll ever call. <laughs> and I think that's the thing. That was exactly what I was going to say. I think the thing that saves it for me from being tedious or in any way, you know, overthought, mm. yeah. is the humor of it. Mm -hmm. The fact that I laugh, and I laugh often, and I laugh at myself, and I laugh at her, and I laugh at everything. And I think that that's what makes it tolerable, because it is somehow intolerable mm -hmm. to read someone's inner machinations <laughs> to that yeah. degree. Mm. Um, but when it's also funny, you get the sense that there is... And I think, actually, I think the humor is where the true self-awareness of this book comes out um, and where the really interesting reflections on itself come out because that's where she's talking to majority opinion. And I think that's where humor gets so interesting is that you can only make a joke if you share a life world. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's interesting to me because this book is also funny. I, we can't forget that. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's very, and we always, I feel like in every episode, we have to emphasize how funny the book actually is. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds terrible when we discuss it, but it's, it's wonderful. I just want to say that I had a very physical feeling in the end of this book, and maybe not to go into too much detail about it, but this, it was not just that it was a twist, but that I felt myself literally like I was, in a, I was sitting down. <laughs> and then I felt this kind of wave of pressure hit me. Oh God! I'm... And then it kind of like like mushed me into the chair, and then just threw that across the room. <laughs> really? Yeah, I it got, is yeah. unambiguously the best ending I've ever read. But that's so dramatic. It was it was very it was very dramatic. I was don't I'm like I'm just like trying to be so removed and like objective and like and then I was like ah oh, fuck. What the huh? hell happened? I was just like, oh, Chris, you've done messed up this time. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like, I think, I mean, I've been kind of primed that there was a sort of ending that was a twist or a thing. And then I wasn't sure how that would be. And then when it did come, <laughs> I was just like, how is that both exactly what this book needs, but also yeah. so... Oh, uh, but yeah. in a way, it just, it tied all the pieces together. Yeah. Dick acted out his role. Yeah. That yes. she ascribed him and... In that way, I think it, it tied a knot on the book, yeah, but yeah. I felt horrible. Yeah, I thought it was horrible it was, Yeah, I thought it was the most evil ending I'd ever read. He just never gave a fuck about this whole thing. He just couldn't care less. He was I, just like, get this crazy said, woman I, away from me. I bet he does now. Yeah. <laughs> but I also have to say that I thought the ending... Uh, what did you say? That Dick acted out his role? I mm. thought the book also, act, also played out its role. Because isn't it like... 
you know, so many books are advertised in, you know, wait until the last page, an amazing twist on the last page, and it never happens. Mm. And it, it fucking happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's why it's got this kind of like holiday book cover. And we've managed to not entirely spoil it, so there's still. Some we haven't, yeah. Oh, not entirely. Good. People might there's still want to buy it from us. Exactly. Buy it from art books. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having listened. I hope we've succeeded in making you want to read the book. I can't emphasize enough how amazing I think it is. Anyways, next time we'll be talking about the Thai story of the eye and it will probably be super gross, so stay tuned. 